Please hold the line. We will answer your call as soon as possible. Today, my guest on Please Hold is Lewis Howes. Lewis is an accomplished handball player, former football player, author, motivational speaker, and now a famous guest on The Ellen Show as of yesterday. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thanks, brother. So first, I got to ask you about Ellen. That's uh -huh. an amazing accomplishment yeah. to be on Ellen. Yeah. What was that like? I haven't been that nervous in a long time. I was in Miami the weekend before speaking in front of 2,200 entrepreneurs and had zero nerves up until the last minute. I think I've just overcome the nerves of speaking in an audience. Mm -hmm. I used to be extremely nervous for years. And I think when you do something that you're afraid of enough, you know, I was doing it every month for years, I got to be very comfortable. And it was about a topic that I'm used to talking about. Going on the Ellen Show, for me, I had kind of built this up in my mind as this <laughs> mega moment for years of yeah. like the unicorn to get on. And she's such a positive inspiration in the world. She's such a giver and it's such like a, you know, an iconic show that I just remember dreaming about like what it would be like to be on there ever one day. And so when the day actually came, I was so nervous that whole day. It was, it shot at like four o'clock in the afternoon. So I woke up, I couldn't sleep the night before. It felt like a championship football game or something. And I, I worked out in the morning. I was like, let me just clear my nerves. That didn't work. I meditated for an hour. That didn't work. I did like some Wim Hof breathing for like an hour. That didn't do anything. I get to the, the studio and I'm like, they have a ping pong table. So I'm like, okay, let me just play some ping pong and try to just like move a little bit. That really didn't work either. And it was up until the moment when I went on backstage and Drew Barrymore was the guest before me and she walks by me. I'm just like, is this real life? You know, it was like kind of surreal. And I'm watching on a screen backstage as I'm about to go on and she's introducing me and she's holding my book up and she's like, Lewis Howes is coming out. I'm just like watching her introduce me and hold my book up. And I was just like, this is amazing. You know, it was a very grateful experience. Were you um, able to relax enough to take it in and feel grateful at the moment? I was very grateful. I think my nerves were, you know, it went by so fast, even though it was a seven or eight minute interview, it went by so quick. And it was a whole new experience for me. I've done a lot of interviews, but this was with a live audience of a couple hundred people, you know, so it's just a whole different level. And um, I feel much better after doing it once. And hopefully I'll be able to go on many more times. And you were just sharing with me, but your podcast is number 10 in the world? Number 10 in the world. Yes. That's amazing. It was about 100 right before. And then it's been at 10 for the last. It's the Ellen 20, effect. The Ellen effect. Yeah. I'm trying to get to number one. So we'll see. That's unbelievable. And the book went to like number 36 in the world on Amazon overnight. So <laughs> Oprah of our time. It's Maybe it, bigger than Oprah ever was with social media. It might be, man. Yeah. She's got over 100 million reach on Instagram and Twitter combined. That's over 100 million people that follow her. Amazing. Congrats. So thank you. It's fun. Very grateful. So um, your parents were opera singers. Is that right? Yes. What was it like growing up in such a musical home? And can you sing a note? I can sing pretty well, actually. I mean, not that well. I can keep a, t a tune, I think. Uh, I play a little guitar and I sing like campfire songs, but... I don't have the voice like my parents and they, it was a very musically, my, my siblings were all musically gifted. My dad forced me to go to a piano lesson when I was probably like seven or eight and I played violin for a couple of years, but I just never was into it. I wanted to, I, I think it's because my brother and my sisters and my parents were so good that I was intimidated hmm. that I wanted to go just do something else and I got into sports because um, I knew I couldn't compete with them. That must have been a fun household growing up, though. It was a lot of fun. Music man. everywhere. Yeah, it was music everywhere. It was fun to listen to and, you know, see my parents sing and my brother perform and stuff like that. Yeah. I know it was also, there were challenging times in that household. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, 
one interesting thing is you you struggled with reading mm -hmm. uh, pretty early. Mm -hmm. And it got to a point where you talked your parents into sending you to a different school? A boarding school. Private boarding school. How old were you? 13. Okay. Yeah. I was... Usually it's parents that recognize I their know. kids struggling. What gave you that initiative? You know, I more wanted to leave not for studies. I wanted to leave to have a better experience because my brother had just gotten out of prison the year prior. My parents were arguing and fighting a lot. My two sisters were off to college. And I was hanging out with a lot of bad kids in my small town, Delaware, Ohio, stealing a lot, smoking cigarettes. Um, this I was coming from a guy that doesn't even drink. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. It was only like a two-month window of like smoking cigarettes, and okay. I was just more like to be rebellious or whatever. But I was just like – I wasn't doing anything inspiring really. Besides playing sports, the rest of my time was tr like getting into trouble, stealing from stores, stealing money, you know, clothes. Not like – cars or anything crazy but just like the act of, of stealing was not feeling good for me most kids though would probably be just be having fun and at 13 just keep yeah. down that path so yeah. what what changed how'd you change i think it? i should i mean i went to prison every weekend for four years to watch you know to meet see my brother wow. so we would visit the, pr the prison visiting room and i'd be in a room with like a hundred convicts and their families and kind of going through the process of like driving there seeing the prison walls seeing the uh, barbed wire taking an hour to go through a security process, like the whole check-in process to get in. Um, it's very embarrassing almost. You know, it's like, it's not fun to be like, oh, I'm going to a prison today to see my brother. So it's, you know, there's a whole process of like, I could see in the future, like if I continue to stay here in this town, it's more in the community of the kids I was hanging out with. If I continue to be in that community, I probably would have gone down some bad path. I don't know if I went to prison or what would have happened, but... I didn't see myself like getting out unless I actually got out of that city. And then I went to a, a, a camp, like a summer camp in the summer from seventh grade. Um, and I met these kids who I was just so inspired by. They were so positive, loving, giving. They were all about service. And uh, for me, I was like, I want to hang out with these kids more. This is the type of group I want to grow up with, not the group I was hanging out with in Ohio. They were good kids. I was just hanging out in the wrong crowd. Very perceptive for a 13-year-old. And they went to this private boarding school in St. Louis, Missouri. A lot of these kids did. Some of them didn't, but a lot of them did. I was like, I want to go hang out with where they're at. So right when I got off the plane from the summer camp to back in Ohio, my parents picked me up. Within the first few minutes, I said, I want you to send me to the school. And they were like, absolutely not. They're like, there's no way you're leaving. You know, we're not going to send you away. We can't even afford it. We can't do all these things. Every single day that summer. This was in the beginning of the summer, the first two weeks after school. So every single day the rest of the summer, I just enrolled them in my vision. I said, listen, I'll do whatever it takes. I want to get out of here. They're like, we can't afford it. I said, I'll apply for all the financial aid or whatever. So they're like, let's see if you can even get into this school because it was like a college prep school. So you had to have, go through a whole application, write essays. So the only time I was actually interested in doing schoolwork, when we have the motivation, we will do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I never wanted to study or do any homework or anything. But when it meant like creating a new opportunity for me, I became the best student. At least I tried to become the best student. I was like writing essays. I was getting like recommendations from other people in the community. I was doing whatever it took um, to get the to get enrolled first, and then to get financial aid, and then to convince my parents. It took a whole two month process until the last couple of weeks before school. They're like, "Okay, we'll send you. Like we see you're committed to this, and we'll send you away." And it was the greatest five years of my life, man. Just like. You know, I struggled still in school because it was very challenging, but the discipline, the, the kids I was around, the, the teachers, the house parents, because I lived in a dorm, 
everyone was so uh, supportive to helping other kids grow and become what they wanted to become. So for me, even though I faced a lot of challenges in school still, I couldn't really read and write still in high school. I had tutors. I had, you know, the special needs classes. But I had the support that it helped me kind of grow. It's a great story. Yeah. Totally changed the trajectory of your life. Everything, man. Um, so you went into football. It was sort of your your passion mm-hmm. and your outlet. Yeah. And you had this injury that became a career-ending injury. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you. I've heard the story that you were on your sister's couch for over a year, and you were yeah. just kind of in this despair place. Many people in that situation would have given up and would have said, "I don't know." I don't know what the mm-hmm. alternative is to succeeding, but I'm just going to not do anything because I'm so pissed off at what yep. what my fate is. How did you find the strength and the determination to not go down that path? You know, a couple things happened right when that happened. My father, six months prior, got in a really bad car accident where he was in a brain injury. He was in a coma for three months. And he's still alive today, but he's not the same guy as my father growing up. He's really not. He can't remember a lot. Um, from the past, he's got a different kind of attitude and energy and he's not really, he's just got a different characteristics. He's like a different person. Still my dad, but it just doesn't, it's just different, very different. So when he uh, got injured and really things shifted in the dynamics of our family because his whole life used to be about us kids and supporting us and it shifted to him not really caring and I think a lot of it had to do with the injury and some other things that happened where he was really just trying to survive. And um, he was always my backup plan. He was like starting to get successful in his business. And he said, you can come work with me whenever you're done playing football. So I kind of had this backup plan. Like my dad was going to take care of me. Like I'm set up. I'm good to go. I don't really need to work hard or figure something else out. He was like, go live your dreams. And when you're done, like come work with me. And eventually you can take over the business or whatever. Now, I didn't really want to do that in the first place, but I think having that maybe didn't think critically in other ways on how I could grow besides sports. So when I got injured, my dad wasn't there to take care of me. He couldn't even take care of himself. I was living off my sister's couch because I didn't know where to go, and she was willing to take me in. And it was really kind of this turning point of like, okay, what do I do now? If my dad was still around, I probably would have gone and just like worked with him and been like, can you help me out? And support me financially for a few years till I figured it out since he wasn't there. And I think a lot of people don't know this about me since he wasn't there. It forced me to be like, okay, I can sit on my sister's couch forever and just be miserable. Or I can try to make something of myself. And I always knew that I wanted to be a symbol of possibilities for people, a symbol of inspiration, whether I achieved all my dreams or not. I wanted to at least be on the pursuit of them to show other people what's possible for their life. You already had that in you at that moment. I already had it in me. Yeah, yeah. I just knew I wanted to do something. I didn't know what it was going to be because I I didn't know the skills I had. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, you know, it was kind of a blessing in disguise when my father wasn't there because I don't think I'd be where I'm at today if he was here in the capacity that he was growing up because I think I would have just been like comfortable with him taking care of me or, you know, having him as my crutch. But I really, there was no other option. You know, I couldn't rely on my siblings to like take care of me. They had their own lives. Did you feel like you were at rock bottom? Yeah. I mean, I had no money. I was in uh, credit card debt. I didn't have a job for a year and a half. I didn't have a college degree yet. I didn't have my identity from playing sports anymore. I couldn't play. So I was like, so there was nowhere else to go. I was like, who am I? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I have nothing, you know, no identity, no dream. 
no money, no job, no experience, no credibility. I had my family and some friends, but it was about it. You know, my my hunger to make something of myself was what I had. This is only this is relatively recent. Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Yeah. Okay. Two, nine years ago. Two thousand eight is when I got my cast off. March of two thousand eight. Yeah. Nine years ago. Wow. Yeah. You've come a long way, my friend. It's crazy. Um, tell it's me. It's been a decade, though. You know, a decade of hard work. Something. You know, good things off. happen. Yeah. Yeah. Overnight success in a decade. A decade. Yeah. Uh, tell me about LinkedIn. How did LinkedIn? Um, why did you even think about going to LinkedIn? Usually, it was for, for professionals, yeah. especially back then. And how did that impact yeah. things? I started reaching out to mentors when I was on my sister's couch and said, you know, any suggestions for me? What what can I can do? To like mentors you already had or mentors you wanted? Mentors I already had. Yeah, just kind of like people I was already inspired by, um, people I knew, my dad's like, you know, business friends, things like that, just people who I already knew. And I was just like, who were so empathetic with me about my father's accident and were really like, sorry, and just like wanted to support. And I was just like, do you have any feedback for me? Like, what can I do? I just had no clue the direction I was going to go. And I didn't have my dad really guiding me as men- as a mentor anymore like he was for so long. And one of my mentors that I really trusted, he said, you should check out LinkedIn. He, it was just a conversation I had. He's good. check out LinkedIn. He's like, you might be able to find some jobs there. It's this, I never heard of it before. He was like, it's kind of like Facebook for professionals. Check it out. Maybe you'll find a job opportunity. And that was it. And I said, okay, LinkedIn.com. And then I just obsessed with like creating a profile adding all my connections and then saying, how can I figure this out to find a job? And through the process of trying to connect with people on LinkedIn to find opportunities, I started to get people reaching out. Now I was on LinkedIn for like six hours a day for about a year, year and a half, just like optimizing Six it. hours a day. Probably six hours a day because sometimes longer, just like adding people one by one and then sending messages to people one by one, wow. hours and hours and hours. And Twitter was big in 2008. It was kind of like blowing up as this thing. And all these tweet-ups were happening. I don't know if you remember this, like 2008, 2009, tweet-ups all over the world. I think we met at a tweet-up. Probably, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All these tweet-ups were happening. I was like, huh, I wonder if I could do this with LinkedIn and create like a LinkedIn meetup because I was starting to build kind of communities, these LinkedIn groups um, in different cities. And so I just started promoting these meetups on LinkedIn and hundreds of people were coming out. And the first couple I did for free, but I got a couple sponsors. And then I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I'm meeting all these business leaders. I'm helping people. I'm making a little bit of cash. And I was like, I wonder if I can make more money with these. So I started charging at the door, like five bucks. And still three to 400 people would show up. And then I started charging more for sponsors. And then I was like, huh, I wonder if I can make money off of like the food and bar of uh, the restaurants I was doing these at. So I built in like 10% commissions with the the restaurant owners uh, for the sales. And then everyone has asked me like, how can I do LinkedIn the way you've done it? This is incredible. You know, I was 25. And they're like, how are you doing this? And so I started consulting with people about like how to optimize their profile, just like basic optimization strategies. And then I started charging more for that. And then I was like, my friend was like, why don't you write a book about this? And I was like, I don't know how to write. I was like almost flunked out of English. And he was like, I'll help you. And so it's just, again, just like moving into like the next step, always looking for what's the next step to optimize what I'm doing. Um, and so I wrote a book about LinkedIn. Then I was selling those at the events and it just kind of grew. And then people were like, can you show me Facebook and YouTube? And I was like, I don't know it, but I can learn it or I can find someone to do it. And it was always like, okay, let me just figure out the next step. 
And I've been doing the next step for 10 years to get me here. So you became an expert at becoming an expert. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, kind of. But, I mean, from my sports background, I knew how to make a goal come come to life. Because every season, we would start the first day of a, uh, of a new season of, of sports. The best coaches would have a, a chalkboard or the whiteboard and say, okay, guys, what's our goal for the next three months for the season of this this team? What do we want to achieve? And that's my mentality is like, what do we want to achieve in the next three months, in the next six months, in the next year? And I could break it down very strategically, which most mm-hmm. people don't know how to do that. And in sports, again, at least where I learned how to play on a team, we would have the vision on the board every single day for the whole three-month season, whether it's make the playoffs, win the championship, whatever it is, win five games, whatever the, the goal is. Every single day we would have an itinerary of how what we were doing every 10 to 15-minute increments of time during practice to help us reach that end goal. So every week we had goals, every month, and every season. And then every day we'd break it down into 15-minute increments of what we were doing in that practice to set us up from the water breaks to the timeouts to the team meetings to the stretching to the cool down to the workouts to everything. So my life was very organized into how do we make something happen? How do we bring it to life? Where I think most people that don't have a sports background, they have to learn that some other way. And maybe it's through music lessons or something, but you've got to learn that somehow. Otherwise, it's hard to create a structure for yourself. And if we don't have an end goal or goals or a vision for periods of time, it's really hard to try reverse engineer how we're going to make it happen. So all I did was say, all I know is about sports. How can I apply this to business now? Like, okay, my first goal is to make $1,000 a month. How am I going to do that? Well, I need to do this many LinkedIn strategy sessions or I need to sell this many books. And I'm like, okay, how many people do I need to reach out to every day? That's all I did. And I would constantly do that. The, the, when I were to reach those goals, I just set new visions for three, six, and 12 months. That's all I've done for 10 years. I think most people say, I want to be worth $5 million, for example. But they miss the in-between. Yeah. And if you have nothing or 10000 in your bank account or whatever, you're going to be worth $5 million, but you don't, you don't spend time on the in-between. You don't have the patience mm-hmm. to plan that. Yeah, it's You're going to have a tough time, aren't you? And I think another thing is, I learned this the hard way is I started achieving all my financial goals and achievements, but then they were never enough. And I felt almost more unfulfilled once I would achieve them. Mm. So I was like, why am I feeling unfulfilled? I just did everything I wanted to do. And I realized like my, my, um, you know, this may sound like cliche, like Simon Sinek, my why wasn't really inspirational. My why was selfish. It was like, cause I wanted to look good or I wanted to hit that number because it would make me feel better about myself, but it didn't have any service of giving back to anything else in it. I'm sure there was along the way, but in my reasoning, there wasn't like, I want to do this because it's going to help all these other things, because it's going to build this community and serve the community as well. I want to achieve this financial goal. And what I'm going to do in the process of making that money is build 20 schools for kids, because that's important to me. So when I started to shift from just like only achieving these things for me to achieving things for we, that's when the inner fulfillment started to happen um, once I was able to shift that. It's great. I wanted to ask you about handball. Uh, you've been very active in handball. Mm-hmm. You went to the Olympics once, twice. We didn't qualify for the Olympics, but I've been with the USA national team for six years now. Six years. Um, handball is not a major sport in the U.S. Yes. Do you think it is on the verge of becoming one? Is anything changing there? 
it's not on the verge of becoming one. It might take like 20 years until it becomes one. Um, I think they need to build a professional league here and really do a ton of marketing over years, maybe be 10 years, you know, once they created a league like that. But it's it's massive in Europe, huge, super popular. And why handball? Do you just love doing it? I saw it when I was on my sister's couch just after I got my cast off in March of 2008. I got my cast off. And the Summer Olympics in China were in July, I believe. So pretty soon after I got my cast off, when I was like, could barely still move my wrist. I was rehabbing it. I couldn't really work out. I saw the Olympics and I saw the sport team handball for the first time. And I was just blown away by the athleticism, by the game itself. I was like, that just looks like a lot of fun to me. And I started doing research and I realized like no one plays in the U.S. So I saw an opportunity. I said, this looks like a sport that I could be really great at and a sport that I can make the Olympics in and continue my athletic dream of playing the Olympics. Because I was always searching every few years, like what's the sport I could learn that could help me get to the Olympics? Because football and all these other sports, uh, there's no football in the Olympics. So... And I wasn't good enough in track and field. So I was like, that's my t- ticket to the Olympics. So I started researching. There was no professional league here. There's no teams except for club teams in like major cities. So there's nothing in Ohio. So I said, when I make enough money, uh, and I was broke at that point, I said, when I make enough money, I'm going to move to New York City because I saw that they were the kind of the national champions for like the club teams in the U.S. So I was like, I'm going to go move there to learn from the best team to see if I have a chance of making the USA national team and making the Olympics. Two years late, two years later, I made enough money and moved there and showed up and said, my dream is to be an Olympian with the USA handball. They laughed at me, but nine months later, I made the USA team and we haven't qualified since, but uh, it's been a fun journey competing against, I've competed against other countries who have been the Olympics, you know, and that's fun. For, close. It's fun for me to be like, I've played against Olympians yep. in international competition um, so it's just part of the journey, you know, I'm trying to have fun. What brought you to LA? Originally a girl that didn't work out. You know my story. <laughs> Originally a girl that didn't work out. a girl. But it ended up working out because I remember you trying to get me to move here and all this other stuff. And I was like, nah, I'm never going to be in LA. Like New York was the place. But then, you know, uh, sometimes the heart follows things unexpectedly. I moved here, didn't work out, but it ended up working out through a year of kind of adversity and stress. And you knew me when I was going through that time. Just a lot of things weren't working well emotionally for me and inner inner life wasn't working well. But I think that's when I had an opportunity to learn and grow the most. I started doing workshops. I started doing emotional intelligence. I started uh, to really just dive in deeper about why I was suffering in certain areas of my life and started to understand why better. That that awareness made me realize, okay, now I know why I've been feeling these this way for decades you know my whole life why i've been feeling this way and allowed me to shift out of that into a new path and i said what is it i really want to be doing because i started to become successful in business and make a lot of money but i wasn't fulfilled internally still and i was like i really want to give back to people and help them learn things that i wish i would have learned growing up in a different way learn this type of stuff the mindset i learned kind of in sports but how can we apply that to every area of our life and in LA traffic, when I was miserable one day, like stuck in traffic and just frustrated with everything, I was like, I really want to go back to interviewing people. It's what I did on LinkedIn. I would connect with them and interview them about like business and entrepreneurship. But I was like, I really want to interview the most inspiring people in the world and start this kind of show. And at the time, this was pre-podcast, uh, when everyone was doing a podcast, 
I kind of saw that that's where the puck was going. So I was like, let me get into this now before it gets big and kind of hopefully ride that wave. So four year, a little over four years ago, I launched it. And, um, and then, you know, kind of two, two and a half years ago when Serial came out, it just created so much more awareness for podcasts in general. And I've been able to get some incredible, you know, you see the wall, you've got some incredible people on the show, which has helped me learn so much myself, have a platform to share content that helps millions of people around the world, and also build incredible relationships that's helped my business, personal life, health, everything else. So it's been a an amazing journey going through something challenging and making something good out of it. So you started a podcast, School of Greatness, which, by the way, we're in. Thank you for lending us your studio today. Nice, right? You like it? Great studio. It's fun, huh? Fantastic view. like the view, yes. Uh, So you started a podcast, which became a book. Then the book became a New York Times bestseller, and you turned that into an event. I think Uh you held the first one. Summit of Greatness. Summit of Greatness. Yep. Now you're writing another book. You're doing more events. I mean, are you becoming the next Tony Robbins? Like, what what is your end goal here? (sighs) My mission and vision is to serve 100 million people. To show them how to make a, a living while living their dreams. Because I think when we do the thing that fills us up the most, we're excited about the most, we're passionate about the most, our dreams, and we can make a full-time living doing it. It doesn't have to be millions or billions, but just enough to feel comfortable at least. When we're in that journey and in that process, I believe we take care of our health better. I believe we take care of our inner world, our emotions better. I believe we're kinder to ourselves. And then we treat others better. For me, if we focus on that, it'll end a lot of the challenges from health issues, from relationship issues, from feeling unsatisfied at at your work, at your career. And I'm not saying everyone should be an entrepreneur, but being a part of something that you're excited about, being a part of a team or a mission that you're excited about, whether you're working with someone or you're working for yourself, the biggest challenges I feel when I connect with my audience is like, I'm not happy at my work. I'm not happy at this. I'm not happy at this. If we're pursuing the things that make us fulfilled inside, then we're going to treat each other better. We're going to be happier. And it's the, the ripple effect is going to be massive. So for me, it's the vision of inspiring 100 million people to start and then expanding beyond that once I reach that many people. Um, and so I'm doing it. I'm not attached to how it's going to happen the mechanism may change. It may be books. It may be podcasts. It may be TV. It may be whatever. Politics? You know, I'm not thinking about that right now, but people, you know, people say I could be good at that in the future. Maybe. I don't, it seems like a lot of stress. I don't know. Um, oh, like you have no stress today? I, I mean, I think it's <laughs> more stress. More stress. Sure. So for me, it's just creating the information that I feel like is a need for people and doing it to the best of my ability every single day and constantly trying to get better. Who are the, is Tony Robbins someone you look up to? Who are the people that you do look up to? I would say if I had to kind of... Um, Five people in the room, you get to hang out with them. Who are yeah, they? Yeah, I would say if I wanted to explain who I wanted to be or like the, the example, I would say if you had Oprah, Tony Robbins, and LeBron James, and they got a baby. I would like to become that baby, essentially, right? If the three of them had a baby, that would be news. <laughs> Crazy, right? Because I love – so I don't think I'm – you know, a lot of people say, you're, you know, like Tony Robbins, but I like to think I'm – I love to interview and connect with people the way Oprah does in a very intimate, open conversation. And I love the type of medium and content that she creates with those interviews and that type of content. So that's something I'm passionate about. 
I enjoy facilitating workshops and speaking on stage, but it's not something I want to do like Tony does all the time. But I enjoy it, and it's another element of interacting and connecting with people in that that style of approach of content. And then I love what LeBron James represents as a health athlete symbol where he's pursuing his dreams as an athlete, and I'm still pursuing my dreams as an athlete and trying to be as health conscious as possible. And I think he does an amazing job with his brand in building that. So I would say if I could merge Oprah, Tony Robbins, and LeBron James, I would like to build my brand and content around those three things combined. Those are three great people. Yeah. Um, Tell me about Pencils of Promise. Uh, You mentioned it earlier, but Mm -hmm. you've helped build schools in Guatemala, I believe? In Laos and Ghana. Okay. So three different countries have helped build schools. Um, What... What inspired you to get involved and tell me about that experience? Again, five years ago, I was trying to, we were making, the company I had before, we were making pretty good money. And I remember just feeling like we're just making all the money for ourselves now. What's the point of this? So after I had my basic needs met and I had a bunch of money like stash, which was what I needed to do first, I was like, okay, if I'm just going to make more money for myself, like I don't feel like I'm contributing to the world. And so my business partner and I was like, what can we do to give back? Like what's one thing we can do? And the idea of a school, we wanted to build our own school, came about. We were trying to do it on our own, but I was like, this is too much work to figure this out. Like, I want to do it right if we're going to do it. And then I met Adam Braun at Summit Series and heard his story. They'd just done like 10 schools at the time. And I was like, here's a guy who's got a mission already, who's like got a team and they've got a process and let's just give them the money and they can figure it out and, and build schools. So that's how it started. I, I met him and I said, I'm going to build a school. He thought I was, you know, just like everyone else who said it and never did anything. But then a month later, we built a school. And it's it's pretty addictive almost, like creating something where you see it has an impact on kids who really don't have opportunities. And when I go and visit these schools and see the kids learning and growing and developing versus the places in these countries that don't have those schools, those opportunities, where they have nothing, I'm like, it's very rewarding to see like, wow, this could impact these kids to giving greater possibilities in the future and then many years to come, kids that are coming through that school. And, there, you know, a lot of ways I give my money back and I'm sure there's a lot of things I could do locally as well, but I see that's kind of the greatest impact for my money. Um, it can go the farthest in those countries right now. So I'm always looking for other ways to give back. But for me, I try to channel as much as I can into one place to get the greatest impact. Um, that, that's fantastic. I mean, Adam's organization, I've always been uh, mm. unbelievably uh, cool. touched and impressed by. They just built 400 schools now. It's, it's incredible. It's crazy. You said you wanted to reach and touch and inspire 100 million people. Yes. How do you Track measure it? that? Yeah. I think it's not going to be a perfect system, but, you know, the goal is to be able to measure it the best that I can through subscribers on my podcast, downloads, views on videos, book sales people that attend live events of mine or places I speak at, things like that. So, What are you up to? Um, we're at 30, 30 million downloads on the podcast. It's not how many people, but... Um, so you get to retire soon. Yeah, I mean, right. you're a third of the way. I think, well, once I reach 100 million, then it's what's the new vision? How can I take it okay. farther? Then we go to half a billion. Then we continue to grow. It's just like the same thing in you know every season of sports. Okay, we want to achieve this vision in this three months. And once the season's over, you create a new vision for the next season. You have an off season where you reevaluate. You say, what worked well? 
What didn't work? How can I improve? Do I still want to go towards this vision of mine? Or am I not really passionate about this anymore? That's what an off-season in sports is for. Do I retrain and condition myself? Do I need to learn new skills to wait for the next, the start of the next season? And that's how I apply it. So once that season is complete, I'll reevaluate. Maybe I don't want to podcast anymore. Maybe I'm tired of speaking in front of my audiences. Maybe I'm tired of writing books. I don't know. I'll make that decision once we get there. Yeah. So I want to end on a very personal note. I remember, so you were on the couch, got the cast off in 2008, yes, right? Yes, March. I think we met in either late 2009, early 2010. Yeah. I think it was 09. Yeah, probably in late 2009. And um, about two years later, I was struggling at work. Uh-huh. And you know the entrepreneurial ups and downs like yes. everybody else. Yes. And I called you and I was telling you how I didn't know how I was going to make payroll, uh-huh. which is a big I, problem. I don't think anyone knows this. I don't think anyone knows this either. I've never shared this with anyone. But, uh, but I'm happy to share it because okay. I, think, I think it speaks to you. Sure. And, and so I'm telling you about this problem and you're like, well, what do you need? Mm. I said, I don't know. I think, <laughs> I like think a, it's like a hundred like grand. grand. <laughs> and you're like, okay, do, do you want me to give you a hundred grand? Yeah. And, and so I'm trying to put this all together in my head because in, in the context of it, this is literally three years after you got off the yeah. couch and you were broke Yeah. and you, you were doing fine, but you weren't a millionaire. No, you I weren't. Wasn't. You weren't, it wasn't today. No. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you were offering me what essentially was your almost entire almost all savings. I think I had me out like 120 grand or something. <laughs> yeah. And, and you were offering it to me and, and you didn't flinch. And I didn't expect, I didn't call you to ask for money and right. I certainly didn't expect that. Yeah. And so it really took me aback and, and I was like, I, I would never do that to you. And you're like, well, it's there if you need it. Yeah. So I hung up. I'm like, I, can, I cannot possibly do that. You know, <laughs> take take his money. What if I can't pay him back? Yeah. Um, but you said you came back and you were like, I can pay you back. We're getting money in like the next month or something. I waited three days. Yeah, yeah. And I was still very screwed. Yeah. And But I had secured money where I knew I could pay you back within two weeks or yes. something like that. Yes, So I called you back. And it was such a large amount of money that your mother, who was doing <laughs> your books, yes. had to check like four times on the email. Like, Lewis, are you sure? She didn't want me to do Lewis, it. Lewis, this is a lot of money. She didn't want me to Lu- do it. I'm sure she didn't want I mean, it's it's crazy. She kept saying, no, don't do it. And I was like, just put it through. Like, I trust the process. You know, I trust and, you to come back. And I don't think we signed any paperwork. If, if yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't recall it. So you just said like, I'll give you 500 extra bucks or something <laughs> or something like that. World's right? worst interest rate. Actually for two weeks, it's not so bad. You're right, right. But, but you did it and yeah. you gave me almost your entire savings. I think it was like 80 grand or something or 85,000. It was a significant amount a of lot. money. Yeah. Um, compared to what you had. And my bank and account went down to like 20 and I was like, well, hopefully it comes back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you, you made it so I could make payroll. Yeah. The money did come in. I did pay yeah. you back. I gave you the extra 500 bucks. I think you might've taken you out to dinner too. Yeah. But the reason I wanted to tell the story is more than almost anybody I know. There's not a lot of people in the world. Anybody can call mm-hmm. in that situation and say, I need almost your whole life savings, but I'll, I'll give it back to you. I promise. Yeah. And there's no paperwork and you just give it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm short on words. Like what, mm. what made you s- just offer that so easily? What made you mm. say yes? It, I don't, it, it's, it's who you are. It's not just our friendship. I mean, yeah. that was unbelievable. I don't know. Um, yeah. I forgot about that story, but <laughs> I think, um, I don't know, man. I think I just trusted it was all going to work out. I think you created enough trust to like, hey, the money is coming back in a few weeks. Like, 
I promise I'll get it back to you. And I just believed you. So I don't know. I mean, I think I was just like. I mean, is there a certain naivete that is, but. but It was a feeling. I just had a good feeling. It wasn't like a, a negative feeling. I think we had known each other for a couple of years. We'd hung out at different conferences and like shared hotel rooms and just had enough shared experiences where I was like, I believe you're going to give me the money back one way or another. I was like, if you didn't give me, and you know, you would not do anything else until you got the money back. If you weren't able to get it back, to you're me. also a lot bigger than me. So worst exactly. comes, to, push comes to shove. I just was like, you know, what are you gonna do? I mean, unless the company goes bankrupt, I was like, you'd get me the money in the next six months to a year from something else you were doing. I just well, knew you'd get it back to me. So you you may think it's not a big deal, but it was. Thank you. It was a huge deal to me at the time yeah, when I think course. about it, and I think it really speaks to to who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, when you say giving. You're giving yeah. your time. I mean, obviously, you're you're making money giving, but that's fine. Mm. There's nothing against that. It's great. Yeah. And uh, that was a very personal example mm. of your yeah, your giving spirit that meant a lot. My pleasure, man. So I'm I'm one of those hundred million people. Sure, sure. And that was a big deal. Yeah. Um. Cool, man. Anything else you want to say today? How are you feeling today? You you went you had so much time in your life that you weren't feeling fulfilled and. You're making all this money. It wasn't doing it for you. Where, where are you at in sort of your inner peace? I feel very uh, calm. I mean, there's stressful days where I'm just a lot like today. You know, after the day after Ellen, there's just been nonstop texts and emails, and that's a, a high of, class problem. Yeah, it's the first world problem of like, you know, just wanting to get back to people quickly and trying to get things done and and stay ahead as opposed to reactive. So I have days where I'm stressed or whatever, but I think internally I know I'm doing things that I love and making an impact and it's fulfilling and rewarding for me. Now I have, you know, my own challenges and all sorts of stuff where my ego gets in the way and business relationships sometimes, uh, personal intimate relationships, you know, things I still face challenges, but I think I'm aware of them and as opposed to reactive like I used to be, I'm proactive and trying to address things with communication and vulnerability as opposed to just like, you know, screw the world mentality, like no one gets me or whatever, you know. So it's a constant journey, uh, but I feel very fulfilled. I think I'm like you. I want the results faster, and I want to achieve more quicker and wish it was done yesterday and things like that. But, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years almost, which may not – I mean, 10 years since I got injured playing football. It's gone by like that. It's been a lot of time, but it's also gone by so fast. And I think people need to understand that, like, you probably know me better than anyone that I've worked my butt off for the last seven years since you've known me. But it's a lot of work before that I met you, too. And it's been a consistent um, – it's been a lot of consistency and giving because I'm not the smartest, like, person in business. I don't have, like, the biggest – new tech idea or invention or something like that. It's been like consistently adding value and being of service. I think that's what's something about interesting about this show is like when we are in service at the highest possible level to serve others and fulfill their needs, it will come back to us if we are willing to be patient and we're consistently doing it. We can't just do it once in a while and be rude the rest of the time. We have to do it every single day and live in that space if we can. We're not going to be perfect, but doing the best we can every day is all we can do. I have never seen you really angry. Um, well, I've it's seen happened. You, well, it's I've happened. seen you, I've seen you uh, in situations, perhaps in, rela- in personal uh, relationships with girls. That, yeah, yeah. But, but that aside, yes. I've never seen you really angry. 
You haven't seen me play sports. Okay, so that's how you comes out in sports. Sometimes, sometimes. You know, my still my downfall, which I'm aware of, is like if uh, if I feel like attacked in sports, like physically attacked or verbally attacked, I can get angry like quickly. And so I need to be very aware of that and not allow it to control me. Because, you're, you know, four years ago, and I got a really bad fight. I think I told you this. I got a bad fight in the basketball courts where, you know, I put someone in the hospital. And um, oh. now he, in my defense, he hit me. He headbutted me first. We were jawing back and forth, and it was a physical game. And then he all of a sudden just comes out of nowhere and headbutts me. So I lose it and, um, you know, get in a pretty bad fist fight. And it was terrifying to me of what I did and how I reacted because he had a huge, you know, his face was mangled. And I was just like, what is wrong with me? And that's when this whole path, that's when I was going through the breakup with my girlfriend that you know in the past. That's when I started to do the work on myself. Of like, why am I so reactive? Mm-hmm. Why do I get angry in a situation like this? Because most of the time I'm a loving, fun giving guy so i think it's uh you know i'm very aware of it i'm not angry anymore but there's still moments where i can you know react and i have to be aware and let it go and not be uh let my ego consume me so well i don't think we're going to be on the handball court about exactly. court anytime no, soon. No. so yes I, maybe we'll never see you angry. <laughs> exactly thanks for being on man. appreciate it bro thanks. did you like what you just saw you want to see more go ahead and subscribe we have new episodes every tuesday and if there's someone you want to see on the show Just add them as a comment down below. We'll take a look and we'll have them on if we can. Thanks again.